This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. So there have been some changes since our last episode. I guess that's an understatement. For one thing, there was the time change and turning the clocks back an hour. That means it now gets dark by 4.30 p.m. I can only say that is very annoying for a gardener like myself. I don't enjoy having to come inside early, not when I have so much to do in the garden. With the waning light, I also get to deal with a massive case of seasonal affective disorder, which means hours of sitting under a full-spectrum light bulb and eating chocolates. I guess things could be worse. We also just experienced our first serious freeze, so I made sure to empty all of the rain barrels and get them inside the barn so they wouldn't freeze and crack. The other big change, of course, was the election. I am grateful to hear that working to stem the effects of climate change will be a priority of the new incoming administration. Our environment and wildlife need all of the help they can get. Good news for hummingbirds. Reports are coming in announcing another successful southward migration for countless numbers of ruby-throated hummingbirds from the New England region down to Mexico and Central America. Hummingbirds migrate when they experience hormonal changes triggered by the waning daylight. The males depart very early, sometimes by the end of July. The females leave in the fall, and lastly, the first-year juveniles migrate and they complete their very first journey alone. How do they find their way by themselves? Another unsolved mystery of the bird world. When you see increased feeding activity at your nectar feeders, then you will know the hummingbirds are preparing for their long journey. The birds attempt to store enough body fat to get them through their entire journey and can gain nearly half their body weight before departing. Just like human snowbirds, they make haste to get down to a warmer climate. They can flap their wings up to 80 times per second, and their heart rate can reach an astounding 1,200 beats per minute. They typically travel just over 20 miles per day, so their journey can take several weeks to complete. They fly low in order to take advantage of available food, like insects or nectar from flowers. Now, I do get lots of questions about how long to leave nectar feeders out for hummingbirds. People ask me, should I leave my feeder up later than usual? Some people are worried that leaving their feeders up through October will encourage hummingbirds to stay in New England for far too long, and then it will be too late and the bird will be stuck up north for the winter. There is no need to worry about this. Hummingbirds know when it is time to migrate. Leaving your feeder out an extra two weeks can be very helpful to hummingbirds, especially the late migrants from Canada. But I wouldn't leave them out much longer than that because you have to start worrying about freezing temperatures. Plain water freezes at 32 degrees. Sugar water has a lower freezing point, which is roughly 27 degrees. If you are concerned about freezing temperatures, you can bring the feeder in at night and then put it out again in the early morning, provided the forecast is for warmer temperatures throughout the day. 
The real concern I would have is feeding sugar water that is too cold, which can put a hummingbird into a state of cold stun, and that is not good. Once you start getting consistently freezing temperatures, I would bring the feeders in for the year. Okay, today we're going to be talking about methods for planting native seeds. Namely, planting native seeds outdoors in the dead of winter for lots of seedlings come the springtime. I would now like to introduce Heather McCargo, the founder and executive director of Wild Seed Project out of Portland, Maine. This organization is doing a phenomenal job of teaching people how to restore native habitat for the benefit of the birds and other wildlife. In our interview today, we will be talking about how to plant and germinate native wild seeds and how to handle the resultant seedlings in the springtime. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're so glad you could join us on Bird Hugger. Can you tell us all about your organization? Yes, Wild Seed Project is a young 501c3 nonprofit organization. I'm the founder, and in, I founded it in 2014. We got our 501c3 certification that fall. And I've been working in the field of native plant conservation and horticulture my whole adult life. I studied plant ecology in college. I did a bunch of horticultural internships. One was at the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod. The other was in the propagation at the Arnold Arboretum with Jack Alexander. And then I went on and got my master's in ecological landscape design at the Conway School. I worked for as a landscape architect for a while out in the West Coast in California. And one of the offices I worked at, the man's specialty was California native plants. And he'd also worked at the Berkeley Botanical Garden. And that's what made me interested in public garden work. So when I moved back east, I went to the Garden in the Woods, the Botanic Garden of the Native Plant Trust. And I was the propagator there from 1990 to 95. And I moved to Maine in the fall of 95. So what made you want to start this organization? Well, I've been focusing on wild plant reproduction and ecological horticulture all these years. And I had been in Maine. And when I moved to Maine, I was a stay-at-home mom for a few years. And as I was getting ready to go back to work, I realized that so much of the great work I'd been doing at the Native Plant Trust's Botanical Garden, Garden in the Woods, people didn't really know about in Maine. Like the awareness about the loss of native wild plants was less in Maine almost, even though there's a lot of nature, people are more focused on organic agriculture and then Southern Maine's getting developed. So I just saw a need to get help people understand the important issues with native plants that they're diminishing in the wild and we need to bring them back. And particularly that they need to be grown from seed because it's seed grown plants that have genetic diversity. Most of the nursery trade is really oriented towards cloning now. And so that's not a path I wanna see happen with our native plants. So I felt like I had an expertise in wild seed propagation and wanted to create a grassroots movement where lots of people got out there sowing the native seed. My hope is, yes, that more nurseries will offer seed-grown native plants, but I also think that's not enough. We need lots of people sowing the seeds. So that's what motivated me to do it. Our programs are we sell seeds of all wild type 
locally grown native plants are either grown in some of our native stock gardens and also in our membership's lands. We collect seeds from, not from public lands. And then we also have a really beautiful and informative website that's like a book with just tons of great articles and images on native plants. And then we also have a print publication, Wild Seed, that we publish each year. And my hope with that was really helping people visualize the plants more because most people don't know these plants anymore. And I'm a reader, so I like a print publication. And the world has really gone, you know, they're the people who only look at things on the computer. And then there are other people who still preferred to read in print. So it's a little bit tricky to navigate both. It's not really a magazine, you know, there's no advertising. It's really like a journal, but it's very visual to inspire people. Because there's a lot of people think, oh, the native plants don't look as good for some reason. It's just because people don't know them. Even most nursery growers don't know most of the native species. And they're not abundant out there in the wild anymore. And anyone can join Wild Sea Project, correct? Yes. And anyone can join and become a member. And we really value and appreciate our membership. We have a membership of over 900. And that's sort of the back of our financial support and members get a discount on the seed and they get a copy of the wild seed but you don't have to become a member you can still we have lots of free information on our website and anybody can purchase the seeds or purchase the magazine you don't have to be a member but as a nonprofit, you know most people don't realize out there in the world that you know the whole value of nonprofit is the work is mission driven and it's dependent on a wide base of support. It's not a foundation where there's just one funder. It's dependent on a wide base of support. So our membership's part of that support and we have bigger donors and we get grants and have annual fundraising campaigns, but it's that broad base of support. And it also means even though I'm the founder, I'm not the sole source of deciding everything as a nonprofit. You know, it's a collective with my board of directors are a big part of steering it too. And that's sort of a revolving thing. So people often said, why didn't you just start a seed company? And the reason I didn't is it's not economical to tromp through the landscape collecting seeds. You know, the as I'm sure you're aware, being a gardener and having a gardening podcast, the seed industry is now a multinational, you know, been mostly taken over by multinational corporations. And it's really made the economics of seeds challenging. And so I wanted to, I knew to pull it off, I would need to rely on a lot of volunteers. So it's harder to get volunteers when you're a for-profit business. But Working with the seeds is really fun. So we have a whole team of volunteers who help clean and count and package our seeds and help us fulfill our seed orders. And boy, we have been so busy this year. You know, we're still young. So every year the seed sales have increased more. But with COVID this year, people are at home more and they're, you know, worried about the world and nature. So our seeds have been even more popular than ever. And it's more of a challenge this year because I can't have my teams of volunteers all in our office. 
Um, you know, we're not allowed to. We're following the guidelines of the Maine Association of Nonprofits, so I have to have them work from individually from their home. So that's been one COVID challenge this year because doing the seed work is fun. I have people begging to volunteer with me to help with the seeds. It's also they're very beautiful. All the seeds are different. So would you say your overarching goal is to rekindle an enthusiasm for native plants and to teach people about native plants and then also to help them restore native habitat in their backyards by planting the seeds? So there's a couple things that are very different about native seed sowing versus if you are an experienced vegetable gardener or gardener of annuals, you know, or pretty much anyone who's trained in traditional horticulture, you're trained, you know, you want to wait till it's warm to sow your seeds or sow them indoors under lights or in a greenhouse. Well, the reason that happens with our vegetables and common annuals is most of them are species from a tropical country like tomatoes and corn or a Mediterranean climate, so a much warmer climate. In addition, they're all domesticated species, so they've been selected over time for rapid germination. So our native species, most of them, the seeds need a winter cold period outdoors before they will germinate. Think of where we live. It's There's a long, cold winter. Our, our native seeds need that. So therefore, the whole timetable for sowing native seeds is completely different than vegetables. Instead, it's late fall and early winter when you sow them and sow them outdoors. So what we recommend, a lot of people love the idea of just taking the seeds and tossing them out in the world because they see, you know, seeds fall off a tree and they blow or get carried off by an animal or insect. Well, what most people don't realize is most of the seed that a plant produces never lands where it germinates and grows. It either gets eaten by an animal, it's part of a food chain, or it lands somewhere where it's not going to make it to an adulthood. So take an oak tree, which can live a couple hundred years and produce millions, millions of seeds over its lifetime. For all the red oaks in New Hampshire to be a stable population, only one acorn from each of those trees that might live two or 300 years has to germinate and make it to adulthood. So in other words, when you just toss them out there in the world, most of them aren't going to turn into a plant someday. So I like to get people to sow the seeds in either pots or flats or a carefully prepared seed beds. So you can do that indoors, like over Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's. And by fall, I mean late fall. We're just now entering where it's cold enough outside that you can think about sowing them. You do it any earlier, and especially with the warming climate, you will have an Indian summer and some seeds might get mixed up and think it's spring and germinate. So, you know, you can sow them in pots. That's how I like to do it. So you take a package of our seeds, which might have anywhere from 30 to 100 seeds in it. You can sow the whole package in one little four or six inch pots. I like people to use good compost-based organic potting soil. And there's so many good brands available now. Unless you hot compost your own compost pile, you really need to get compost that's been hot composted so that there won't be any weed seeds in it. Put that in the pot, then you sow the seeds. And then, like I said, you can sow them thickly. Native seeds are very different from your vegetables, which if they're too close together, they just quickly crowd each other out like your tomato or broccoli seedlings. 
you know, our native species are mostly perennials, so they don't grow as quickly. And they really seem to germinate better when they're close together. So I'm talking an eighth to a quarter of an inch apart. So in your little six inch pot, you could have a hundred seedlings all germinating and they'll grow closely together. And so you sow the seeds, then you cover them with coarse sand. This is also really important. Don't cover them with more potting soil, but instead use coarse sand. And you can get that in any good hardware store. You need to make sure this time of year that it doesn't have de-icing chemicals in it. And then put a label in the pot, push the label down so the squirrels or chipmunks don't pull it out. And then you literally carry the pot outside. So my preferred time to do this is New Year's Day. All the seeds that we sell, which we have about 75 species on our website, I do a sort of trial sowing of all of them at once, just the way I recommend for all our customers. And I usually do it around New Year's Day. So we have had some New Year's Day where it was warm enough I could do it, the pots outside, but usually I do it in my kitchen or basement. Then I carry them outside and then you cover them with wire screen. And that's because chickens or if you have free range chickens or if you have cats or squirrels, chipmunks, mice, they're like little juvenile delinquents and they'll dig in the pot. So you have to cover them. The other thing you want to look for is a flat space in the shade. And that's really important because these are going to be outside waiting to germinate all winter and then all throughout the spring. So let's say it's New Year's Day when we've sown these seeds, we carry them outside, put them in a shady spot, say on the north side of the house, ideally even under like a wire bench or patio table. That's nice place to put them under, then, you know, somebody won't step on them. And then they will start germinating in the spring. And some will germinate as early as March, mid to late March. Others will wait till the heat of summer. And people often think, oh, but what if the weather's bad when I sow them? I'm like, that doesn't matter. You carry the flats outside, rain, snow, sleet, you know, ice storm, two feet of snow, then a winter thaw, then more rain, then it freezes overnight, and then it snows some more. That freeze and thaw really helps break up the heavy seed coat. And again, this is where wild plants are completely different than your vegetable seeds, which have been selected over time to have a thin seed coat that's why, you know, if your lettuce seeds don't germinate in a week, they're, they're probably no good. But with the native seeds, it takes that freeze and thaw to break up these heavy seed coat, which, you know, is protective to the seed. And it takes the multiple freeze and thaws for that to happen. And then they won't necessarily all germinate at once. You know, a wild plant doesn't want to germinate its seeds all at once. That's a bad strategy in the wild because they might germinate and then there might be a couple weeks of no rain and the little seedlings will dry up. But if some of them germinate a little earlier and then others germinate a little later, so they can germinate anywhere from you know, over a period of a couple of days to a couple of weeks, months, even years with some, especially shrub and tree species will have scattered germination over a couple years. Now, sometimes that's really annoying to people. They want everything right away, but our native plants have existed in Eastern North America for millions of years. They've learned what they need to do to survive in this climate. And so it's pretty interesting because some species, like I said, germinate really early in the spring. 
And then others will really wait till the heat of summer, late May or early June. And so you can, in these little pots, you can have, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 seedlings. So you can either do a big, ultimately do a big planting project in your yard, or you can, you know, donate them to a native plant sale, or you can share them with friends. But the other thing that's different is they're perennials and they're much more slow growing than annuals. I like to have people grow them on in their little nursery area all summer and wait till the fall to plant them out. So like I said, I typically do all of our seed sowing around New Year's Day. You can start it anytime around now, but where you carry them outside. So I might be doing it on a day that there's a snowstorm. Doesn't matter. I just carry all those pots out, put them in that shady flat spot, cover them with wire. And then you let the winter happen. So it can be snow, you know, two feet of snow, then it can pour rain, and then it can be a warm spell and sunny and oddly creepily warm, and then dip below freezing that night, and then more snow, freeze thaw. This is what the native seeds actually need. That freeze and thaw helps break through the heavy seed coat, which is what's necessary for the seed to imbibe water and prepare for germination in the spring. And, you know, each native seed has its own timetable for germination. Some like to germinate in the cool, frosty temperatures of early spring, so late March. Others won't germinate till April, May, and even into early June. Jack in the pulpit is actually one of the last of the native seeds to germinate. And if you think about it, it's actually that family that it's in, the Arum family, is mostly a tropical family. So it waits till it's nice and warm before it germinates. And the other beauty of outdoor propagation is all the problems people have with indoor seed sowing, either on the windowsill or under lights or in a greenhouse, damping off fungal gnats, moss, algae. None of that happens with outdoor seed sowing. The sand covering makes a thick, gritty surface that keeps the seeds from splashing out. That helps keep those the um, fungal gnats and the damping off. And also the, just the good fresh air circulation. It's a completely different experience. In fact, you know, you don't need to be a gardener to sow native seeds. In fact, sometimes gardeners have a harder time because everything they've been trained with domesticated plants, it's kind of the opposite with wild plants. You don't need to fuss over them. You put them outside in the winter. You don't need to worry about the strange cold weather or the freeze and thaw. This is what the seeds like. So then they'll ger- different species will germinate at different times in the spring. So if you, let's say you sowed nine different species in little four-inch pots, in one square foot, you could have several hundred seedlings germinating. In one square foot, you can have, that's a lot of different plants in one square foot. And remember, each seed, a seed is the result of sexual reproduction. And the whole reason sex was invented in life was to mix up the genes of multiple individuals. So each of those seedlings is different and that's genetic diversity. And that's what's really important as we look to the future because it's genetic diversity. It's that those different genes, you know, some will be more tolerant of heat, some of more drought, others of rain or pollution, you know. If if you have 
any siblings in your family with the same two parents. You see what even the same two parents mixing up what different offspring they can create. Well, the same thing happens in the plant world and each seed is a different unique individual. So now you've got, you know, these couple hundred seedlings on little four inch pots in let's say late May. What do you do then? Everybody's very anxious to get them out in their landscape. And I really like to discourage that. You know, these are native wild plants. They're perennials, which means they don't grow as fast as weeds or as your typical vegetables and other annual flowers, which are annual plants, which grow quickly. So therefore, they will benefit from your continued care over the summer. So what I like to do is have people not divide up all those little seedlings into individual pots, but instead to just take that whole pot, tip it out, and put all those seedlings as a clump into a much bigger pot, like a gallon-sized pot, and let it grow on for the summer. If it's a plant like New England aster or some of the different milkweeds, they will. They, you can put them in a two-gallon pot, and you'll get 18 inches of growth that first summer. And by the way, even though they're perennials and most of them won't bloom that first year, they are still recognized by other life, you know, particularly the butterflies and moths as host plants. So that pot of milkweed seedlings, a monarch butterfly might just fly into your yard and decide it to lay its eggs on those leaves. They don't need the flower. It's the vegetation that, the, the, that they need for their reproduction. And so then you can grow them on through the summer and plant them out in your, you know, divide them up and plant them out in your garden or landscape in this late, you know, usually mid to late September is a good time. Now, can I ask you, when you're preparing the pot to put outside in the winter, do you use drainage under the soil? No, I just put them right on the ground. Sometimes, you know, you can put them on your, you know, stone or brick terrace if you want. Don't put them on a covered porch. I get that a lot. People want to put them on their porch, but no, you want the rain, the snow, the sleet on them. If you have a deck, you could put it on the deck, but just make sure they're in the shade. And the reason the shade is important is not for the winter, it's for the spring. So, you know, by late April, the sun is very strong and some of your seed flats will already have germinated. And if they're a sun-loving species, let's say it was butterfly milkweed, then you want to move that pot into a sunnier spot. But for any of the ones that haven't germinated yet, by keeping them in the shade, you'll keep them more evenly moist. You won't have these huge swings of temperature and dryness that can happen starting in late April all through May, particularly if you go off to work away from home and it's a weird hot May day. You just have much better germination if you wait until they germinate in the shade, and then you can pull the sun-loving species that pot into a sunnier spot. But drain, you know, don't put it somewhere that floods. Don't put it under the drip line of your roof. That's important. Just somewhere where they won't get stepped on and that's shady and flat. You don't want them on sloped ground because when if we get a lot of rain, it will wash all the seeds to one side of the pot. And if your ground is kind of bumpy, sometimes I put them on a board, you can put them on a board. Or if you're only doing, you know, four pots, you can, if you ever buy those little clementines that come in the wooden box, you can use that little wooden box as your little frame. You can put them in a nursery, like a cold frame, but you don't put the 
glass roof on top, you need to leave it open. You can just put the screen down. You're not trying to make a greenhouse. You want them out in our weather, no matter what our weather is. So when you're preparing the pots, you put in the soil and, and place the seeds and cover it with the uh, sand. Do you then water them? No, you really don't need to because as soon as you put them outside, it's going to snow or rain. So that's another beauty of doing it in the late fall or early winter. The snow will do it. You know, you can if you want to water them in your kitchen and let then carry them out. But you don't you, you don't need to when you're doing it then. If you were sowing them, you know, there are some species that don't have to have a winter that you can still sow and carry outdoors in the springtime then I would water them. But the real beauty of doing it in the fall and winter seed sowing is it, they become, you know, they actually germinate in the same conditions they will ultimately be growing in and they will get, you know, the correct amount of moisture and those seeds will be really well hydrated. And that's one of the really important features for germination is a well hydrated seed. So take for instance, New England asters don't have to have a winter cold period to germinate. They will just germinate in warm spring temperatures. But if you sowed some seeds on New Year's Day and then you sowed some more in mid-April, the ones sown on New Year's Day will germinate a lot earlier and get a lot more growth in than the ones sown later. Now the other important there's two other important things about why seeds, you know, the genetic diversity, the, it's an easy way to produce a lot of plants. And it's also an inexpensive way to produce a lot of plants. You know, it's, it costs money, you know, I do, you know, to propagate plants and grow them on in a nursery. So if you need a lot of plants for your landscape, it's much more economical to do it yourself. Now, I would like to see a lot of nurseries offering seed grown native plants too. So it's not that everybody has to sow their own seeds, but we need lots of these plants back out in the landscape. And, you know, for the same amount of money, you can produce thousands of plants than in dollars if you go to a nursery and buy, you know, a quart pot you know, where you're going to pay 10 or $12, which so you should, you know, the really cheap plants at the big box store, those, a lot of them are treated with neonicotinoids, the in systemic insecticide that kills bees and, um, you know, butterflies and moths. And they're all cloned and patented plants. You're not doing anything for biodiversity when you're buying those cheap plants. If you want cheap plants, sow the seeds. And it really isn't hard. So could you just talk a moment about the term rewilding? What does rewilding mean? So rewilding means returning our landscapes to natural processes. So some research done by Doug Tallamy, who's an entomologist from the University of Delaware, he's sort of the god of the relationship between native plants and the food webs. And his recent research has really shown that when a landscape doesn't have at least 70% of its vegetation, biomass, native species, then food webs unravel. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, you take your typical suburban yard where it's mostly lawn, there isn't any, you know, that supports no other wildlife. And then a lot of ornamental plants are from other parts of the world. And so they don't host our region's insects. And caterpillars of butterflies and moss, along with plants, are the base level of the food chain. And our 
caterpillars need our plants. If you live in Europe, the caterpillars there need their native plants. If you live in Asia, they need their. So we need to have at least 70% of our landscape plants be our indigenous species. And so it's getting people to understand that, you know, this is new data that most people don't have a clue about. They think I have a nice green yard. I even take care of it all organically. I don't use any chemicals. I have, you know, a lot of lawn and then I have a lot of nice flower gardens that are all organic. But if you don't have a lot of native trees and shrubs, particularly, then you don't have enough of the indigenous vegetation to support our local food web, which makes the whole ecosystem collapse. Our population has doubled since the early 60s. We have really displaced a lot of our native plants are losing their place in this world and we need to bring them back and we need to bring them back everywhere, you know, in cities, in everybody's own yard, in public spaces, on farms. They need to have, they can still have their crops, but they need to have hedgerows with native trees and shrubs and ground covers. We need to get a lot of plants back quickly because we we don't have we're, our biodiversity, even here in New England, that still looks relatively green, it is unraveling. And this is something we can all do. So rewilding is not a new term. It's first you know, I've been in conservation biology my whole adult life, and it was in the 80s that some of the wildlife biologists were recognizing the really important role that top carnivores or big animals played in keeping a landscape healthy. And, you know, at the end of the last ice age, we had a lot of megafauna, you know, North America had huge animals, mastodons, mammoths, giant sloth, the American horse, the American lion, the saber-toothed cat, the, you know, cave bear. We had lots of big animals that went extinct. And then since colonial time, we wiped out the wolf and a lot of the big cats. It's the reason we have deer are overrunning our landscape. So in the 80s, in the conservation biology world, they started, you know, talking about we need to rewild, create quarters of wildness so that these top carnivores and other big animals that, you know, are key organisms that affect how the landscape functions can return and we need to connect them up. In the last decade or so, that movement has really expanded beyond to we need, you know, with the loss of nature everywhere. I mean, you've read all the, you know, headlines in the newspaper, loss, you know, of nature 70% in the last 50, 60 years, you know, and that's here too. It's not just in some other part of the world, loss of insects, birds, you know, wildlife, you know, the biomass of the world's wildlife is nothing compared to, it's mostly people and our farm animals. While we do want to have these big corridors of real wilderness areas, which, you know, is part of rewilding, but it's also bringing the native plants back into all of our landscapes because they are the base of the food chain and will bring the birds and bees and butterflies and all the other creatures back. Even some of the carnivores will come back. I mean, you've seen since the COVID hit and all the cameras that have caught wildlife coyotes and cougars in urban areas that people didn't realize, you know, some of them are even making it into the city and 
We need all the species to make our ecosystems function. And native plants are the foundation, the base level of our terrestrial or land-based ecosystems. So you start with them. And the rewards are really quick. You plant a native tree or shrub or wildflower and you quickly start, you know, getting the birds and the bees and the butterflies coming back. And we've got a lot of beautiful species. I've been growing these plants for a long time and you can have a very beautiful yard with native species. Doesn't mean that we have to push out all exotics if they're not invasive. You know, it's fine to have a few if you've got a peony that reminds you of your grandmother. You know, that's not an invasive species, but we need to bring a lot more of these native plants back. And we really have lost them. You know, I still have my field guide from when I was in college in 1978 studying plant ecology. And, you know, it's pretty sad to go look through the descriptions of all the different plants and how often they were listed as abundant or common and how they're not anymore. You know, it is shocking how many once common native shrubs and wildflowers just you see a few here and there but you don't see the masses anymore and as someone who's grown a lot of these species and grown them in people's gardens and landscapes they make excellent you know low maintenance landscape plants and they support all this other life so we need our landscapes to be a life support life they need to not just be decoration which is how we really treated them. It's all been about what looks beautiful to us. And, you know, in the past, we didn't realize the problem we were causing. But we know that now. Just like, you know, all the invasive species, I, people will say to me, oh, but it's so pretty. I'm like, well, why do you think they recommended people plant purple loosestrife? Not because it was ugly. It was a pretty garden plant. But that's not the point. It's that, you know, some of the exotic species become major, you know, the plant equivalent of a rat. And if you don't control its population, it will push out everything else. And, you know, let's bring the native species back and we'll start hosting more life in all of our yards right out your back door. Right. So now many of our listeners are brand new to native gardening and they're very eager and excited to get started. Are there a few plants maybe you could recommend that are, are that would be easier for them to grow and, and give them a little success in the beginning? There's lots of easy ones. And well, I always recommend plant more trees, more native trees. And if you can have the space to plant an oak tree, please do that because an oak hosts, you know, hundreds of different species of butterflies and birds and frogs and all kinds of creatures. So plant a native tree. If you don't have room for a big tree, plant a small tree like a service berry. The Wild Sea Project website is filled with lots of useful information on this. So the Wild Seed blogs, I have a blog called Small Flowering Native Trees that'll give you a dozen, a little description of what they look like. I've done one on how to, you know, native meadows, what it takes to manage a meadow with native plants. Got one on in the shade. Do you have a shady landscape? I, one of the things that always upsets me is people think nothing can grow in the shade. I'm like, 
We live in the great Eastern deciduous forest bioregion. We have thousands of great native species that thrive in the woodland understory. So I have a blog that gives you the understory trees and shrubs and wildflowers. So you really have, when you think about planting, the first thing you have to do is look at your site. Is it sunny and dry? Is it sunny and wet? Is it part shade? Is it full shade? And then go pick the plants that fit that. And like I said, please, I hope your listeners will go to the Wild Tea Project website because that's exactly what it's filled with. There's the different blogs. I, we have a nice new blog on Rudd is Rewilding with a lot of images showing different ways you can do it. Are you in the city? Are you in the country? You know, what do we mean by it? And what does it look like to help people visualize? So, you know, if you want a high impact perennial, New England aster, swamp milkweed, butterfly milkweed, those are the two milkweed species that make excellent garden plants and they both will serve as a host plant for the monarch butterfly, but they also support lots of other pollinating insects. They're covered with all kinds of native bees and butterflies. Campanulas, wild strawberry. If you go to our seed sale page, you'll see the different wildflowers that most of them are pretty easy to grow from seed. And we have a nice picture and the little description. And so what you want to do is understand where you're going to plant it and then pick a plant that likes those conditions. And that's the problem, you know, with sort of whim buying, when you go to the nursery, you just see something that you like and you grab it. Instead, it's better to look what, understand what your conditions are. And Native plants don't need all the extra water and nutrients that, you know, are a lot of the garden annuals and vegetables do. So if you have a sunny, dry site, you don't need to fight that. You can choose. We've got tons of native plants that thrive in hot, dry sites, bayberry, butterfly milkweed, flax leaf stiff aster, New Jersey tea. We've got tons that like those conditions. So you don't have to go add all these things to the soil. You know, the only thing sometimes with either a new house or a newly constructed building or in an urban area, the soil can be really compacted by foot traffic or machinery. That's sort of an unnatural condition that it's helpful to remedy first. And you can just do that with a digging fork. You know, don't get out there and rototill it. That pulverizes the soil. Just get out there with a digging fork, step on the fork, dig it down and loosen the soil. Or you can use a broad fork. I don't know if you're familiar with those. It's a favorite tool of organic farmers where it loosens the soil without flipping it over. You're not trying to turn the soil. You're just trying to aerate it because of um, it's been compacted by humans. So I just for a moment wanted to address the mindset. I mean, as a, a perennial gardener, I can speak for myself and many others when I say, when I go to the garden center, I am looking for big, bright, colorful blooms, plants that bloom right away. You know, native gardening seems to be almost the antithesis I think you're right. It's a little bit more like you've heard of slow food. It's a little bit like slow gardening in that our native species, most of our native species are perennials. Most of them aren't annuals. Like a couple annuals that you might know from New England are jewelweed. That's one of our annuals, but most of our plants are perennials and most perennials don't bloom the first year from seed. The nurseries, you know, what they've got, they've, those plants have all come from probably been propagated in a greenhouse 
probably not even from seed. They were cloned. And, you know, 50 years ago, little nurseries in New England were dividing perennials and potting them up or maybe taking cuttings. Now that cloning is happening in a laboratory in a process called tissue culture. They're using a lot of chemicals and plants can even be patented. So the nursery isn't allowed to propagate them. The other thing with big flowers is, you know, that's all the result of breeding and like take double flowers, you know, that's where there are all those extra petals. What, you know, what's happened is the sex organs of that flower, the stamens and pistils, which are often yellow and in the center of a flower, and then you have the ring of petals on the outside, those have mutated and they look like petals. So, you know, flowers are all about sex and reproduction. No, that's the whole point of them. But when you mutate the stamens and pistils and they look like petals, there's no pollen, there's no nectar, and there's no seed produced. So there's nothing for nature. And so we need to shift away from that aesthetic. Like I said, you can have your occasional you know, one, but our landscapes filled with those big flowers with lots of extra petals, they're not supporting. That's, that's one of the reasons we have a pollinator crisis. Our gardens are filled with plants that pollinators can't even use. You know, it's just been a trend in horticulture to do all this breeding. And it's all been about beauty, you know, from our standards and the, how a flower looks it is representative of who pollinates it. So, you know, when we start fiddling with that look, it often makes it so that the bees and the butterflies, there's nothing there for them. So, you know, when there weren't so many people in the world, we could get away with that, but we can't get away with that anymore. We need our landscapes to function and they need to support, you know, the insects and the birds and the rest of life. So, just try to minimize it, make sure the ones you like aren't produced with nasty chemicals, which a lot of them are. You really got to ask, this is a great time of year, by the way, to go talk to your nursery about what you want, kind of plant you want to buy in the spring. You know, a beautiful day in May is a really hard time to approach somebody at a nursery in New England. Nursery work is hard and they are flat out. So now is the time of year to either go talk to them or send them an email and say, listen, I'm really interested in purchasing plants that are organic and I'm interested in more native plants and I'd like them to be seed grown, not cloned cultivars. So a lot of people don't know what the word cultivar means. That means a cultivated form of a plant. So all of our vegetables are cultivars and we've selected those traits to produce bigger food for us. But with our garden plants and with our native plants, we don't want to start selecting for these big double flowers because then they lose their ecological value. So you want the straight species, not some, you know, clone selection. And you can tell a cultivar because it usually has a name like little quotation marks after it, you know, you know, sometimes funny names like ballerina or something. But this is a great time of year to kindly talk to your local nursery. Hey, I'm really, I want my plants without pesticides and chemicals in them. And I want, I'd like more native offerings. And because this is the time of year when they start looking ahead to, you know, if they, you know, are buying the plants, because a lot of nurseries aren't propagators anymore. So this is when they need to spend the time sourcing them well. 
and even offer to pay up front, you know, figure out what you want. And again, you can go to the Wild Seed Project website, look under our learning pull down bar. We've got lots of resources. We've got a resource on, you know, pop, you know, native plants by season of bloom. So you can make sure you choose native shrubs and um, perennials so that you have things blooming all season long from really early spring with the pussy willow to late in the fall with asters and witch hazel. Um, We've got so many free resources on the website. If you join, you'll get a copy of our annual magazine, Wild Seed, and a 10% discount on the seeds. So, and you'll support our work. That's a big part of what we've tried to accomplish is make the information out there so people can both see what these look like and know how to grow them correctly. So, I, so like I said, all the different blogs are some aspect of growing native plants. I've got one on native milkweeds for New England, you know, what they look like, how to grow them, where they fit in the garden. Like the common milkweed is better on a roadside or in a meadow, not as easy to manage in your garden because it sends out all these runders underground. Some people don't mind that, but if you're a more traditional gardener, that's not the right place to start. Start with a swamp or butterfly milkweed considering because they stay as a nice clump. So I can tell you how I got started. For years, I was a traditional non-native perennial gardener, and I created garden beds based on English formal gardens in Vita Sackville West and, you know, all the things that, you know, Frances Tenenbaum used to write about at Mifflin when she would issue her gardening books. When I got all excited about native gardening years ago, I, I... I get wild ginger, I got wild shooting star, nice. planted, I have a nice woodland area in my yard, I planted it, went out the next spring and I was like, where are my plants? I don't even see green shoots at this point. So, I mean, I was ready to take a spade and just dig it up and call it, call it defeat. I had done something wrong, obviously, and made a mistake and they died. But I had a friend who was a plant science major and she said, don't you dare touch that area, just leave it. She said, you might have to wait five years before you see those plants come up. And I I was flabbergasted. I said, five years, you know, I don't have time to wait five years. And they all, they all came up. A few of them were after five years, but. Well, again, that is where I don't, I like to have people sow them in pots. Don't like putting the seeds out there. There's so many weed seeds. I mean, you probably are enough of a gardener. You and with your friend telling you that didn't, you know, they will eventually germinate in there. But if you do it in pots, you'll learn and can watch them more. Or with some of those plants too, you could start with a few plants and then let them grow on. What English gardening can still teach us, they plant densely. They don't, they don't have like, for some reason in Eastern North America, people think landscaping is you plant a plant and then have a mile of mulch around it. And you never see that in England. They plant things densely. They also grow lots of plants from seed. When I was a propagator at Garden in the Woods, I had two of my nursery volunteers were retired English people. And they had grown every tree, shrub, and flower in their yard from seed. And, you know, an acorn planted really does grow into a tree, a lot quicker than you think. And if you're older, you're doing this for the next generation. You'll also probably live longer if you invest in something that you know, you're know you gonna get the joy of watching growing. So, but it is slower. Like I said, you know, the 
it's easy to be seduced by the big blooms, but just buyer beware that there's often a lot of chemicals in them, that flashiness. And you don't want that in your landscape. You know, those neonicotinoids, they last a couple of years. That plant, let's say you bought a butterfly milkweed that was, you know, grown, you know, from one of the nurseries out West, you know, brought, bought in as a plug and it came with a neonicotinoid and it can be a couple of years uh, before that's out of its system. So any, any monarch that lays its egg on there, the caterpillar will die and any bee that sips its nectar and neonicotinoids there and nicotine. So they actually, the bees prefer there's something in it, you know, it's like addictive. They keep going back to the plants that are treated with it. So it's really the chemicals route that we have gone down is really shocking. I've been an organic gardener my whole life. My mother was an organic gardener back in the 60s. I, when I became propagator at Garden in the Woods, I completely made the organic, the nursery organic then. I have been growing this way for decades and my plants are healthy and strong. You know, it's really when you're mismanaging things that you get a lot of pests and diseases, or, you know, we can have, you know, with these imported exotic pests that sometimes throws a system out of balance, but chemicals isn't the solution. It just puts poison in the ecosystem and kills the good guys as well as the bad guys. You know, you spray an invasive moth even you're going to kill all the other insects out there and the birds. So we'll never get over that problem. You know, you have to kind of ride out even some of these nasty invasive insects. It's a little bit of riding it out and letting a new predator come in and control the balance. Well, I just really hope that people will not be timid and think about trying to sow some seeds Later this fall, like I said, you don't need to rush and do it tomorrow. You still have three months of good native seed sowing season to do it. That you know, we need to get a lot of these plants quickly out of the out into the landscape. And so beginners try asters, goldenrods, and I sell seeds of some of the goldenrods that make nice garden plants, wild strawberry, campanula, milkweed, those are all good plants, seeds for beginners to start sowing. And again, you can do it after the holidays. We all probably are going to have a lot of time at home this winter. So this is a nice activity and you can, you don't even need to do it yet. Oh yes, there is one other thing I want to say. Leaves. Don't rake all your leaves away. The other reason we have a pollinator in nature crisis is leaves are where they protect plants when they fall down and insulate the soil. It's also where a lot of pollinators, insects overwinter. It's where, you know, salamanders and frogs need to be under those leaf litter. So don't rake them up and stuff them in the bags and send them away. Even if it's to the city composting, instead you can rake them off your lawn. You can rake them off your paths or patio, but put them on the rest of your garden beds. They are really valuable nutrients. And just Use nature as your model. Go for a walk in the deciduous forest and look at all the decaying vegetation that's falling down to earth right now. That is how nutrients are recycled in a forest. And that's what we should be doing in our landscape too. So now people have several options. They can go to wildseedproject.net to order seeds online. Mm -hmm. 
or they can also join the organization. Yes. And there, there is a discount on the seeds. Yes. You get a 10% discount on the seeds and you get a copy of our magazine wild seed. We also have a few other swag items that you can get a discount on and you support our important work. We are a nonprofit and we're dependent on support from a wide variety of people to make it happen. And then there's so much great information on the website, beautiful pictures, read about rewilding. We have this new rewilding pledge, getting people. So the blog is oriented to explaining what we mean by rewilding, why it's important, and then putting your name, signing up that you're going to dedicate the next 10 years to getting your landscape back up to at least 70% native biomass. And we're trying to create a movement and you'll, you know, we have a little map so you can see where people in New England and even across the country, you know, we have a membership that a lot of our members might come to Maine in the summer, but then they live in Texas or somewhere else the rest of the year. So you can sort of watch this movement grow. But there's so much, you know, our website is dedicated to making a lot of free information available to people to teach them all about why native plants matter. And so I really hope your listeners will go take a look and think about buying something. I'm sure they will. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Heather. It was really wonderful being able to talk to you. Sure. Thank you. I would just like to thank Heather McCargo again for a great interview. I am just so impressed with all of the wonderful work she is doing with her organization, Wild Seed Project. I hope you'll check it out. Again, the website is wildseedproject.net. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plants native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.